Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. This episode, I talked with Steve Clucky, who is an architect and senior sustainability consultant here at Stephen Winter Associates. He works with a lot of builders and developers, largely multifamily, especially low-rise multifamily. And he's been asked to do a presentation at several events, several conferences, called We Should Know Better, Top 10 Multifamily Design Mistakes. And it really resonates with folks. It certainly resonates with me. He gets big audiences, so he figured we'd try and talk about it on a podcast. We'll link to uh, the slides he uses in his presentation, which can help visualize some of the things he talks about. But it was really good to chat. This was a long chat, so this week we have the first five of his top ten multifamily design mistakes. Yeah, well. All right, number one, overcomplicated geometry. Yeah, okay, so I won't get too deep into architectural theory and what we all learned in school and what we should have learned in school. And we should say that you are, you are a licensed architect. I am a registered architect. architect. That is true. I've right. been for ugh, 13 years now. All right. Right. Um, and I wouldn't ever say, or I wouldn't say that I was ever a hot pencil would be the term. Like designing things that look great was, I can make them work but, and then make them look good, but making like the really great stuff, the wins awards, not my jam. Hence, senior sustainability consultant. Um, but anyway, so at some point in architecture, we got the impression that to make a building interesting, you had to make it sculptural. I don't know, blame, blame Frank Gehry or whatever. And so architects are, for some reason, driven to make their buildings uh, do funny things sometimes. And to me, funny things means bump outs, bump-ins, setbacks, jogs in the building footprint. I mean, I've seen building sections that look like a human spine. They, you know, they jog in and out and they, you know, and and it's to, I guess, make things look interesting, but um, it makes the building work a lot harder than it has to. Um, and really, it's, it's all subjective. And, you know, again, not being a hot pencil, I can just say that. That uh, uh, just because I was never good at it, that means I can trash it. But really, very few buildings are going to go out and win a design award, right? Very few buildings you're going to look at and be like, yep, everyone agrees that's a great building. Mostly, everyone is going to have a different opinion, and some people are going to hate your building no matter what you do. So it's very subjective. Things that are not subjective include gravity, heat, okay. wind, rain, all these things that the building has to resist over its entire life, those things are not subjective. They are objective. And so I think sometimes we put too much of a priority on these subjective design desires um, and not enough on these objective things that really maybe matter just as much, if not more. As an engineer, mm. I'm exercising excellent restraint, mm. I think, right now. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean. It helps that you're tied up with belt, leather belts. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I mean, the more, the more surface area, the better it sometimes sees. How many gables can we cram mm, on this? Oh, or boy. how many dormers can we cram on this roof? And it, it's, it gets, yeah. I drove it gets by a one little silly. On the way home from Albany yesterday, and I almost stopped to take a picture 
to add to my next the next time I give this presentation, but I I didn't traffic. Yeah. And it turns into all framing. There's no room for insulation. It's just all framing. Uh, yeah, and you're it, making the building work harder, and and the the basis of of where I'm coming from is is making the buildings easier to actually build. Um, and so I think that results in a building that is going to be more efficient. Um, it's going to be probably less expensive. Oh, yeah. It's going to be easier to maintain. Um, uh, it's going to be easier to build in that you're not giving your subcontractors a bunch of surprises. If you can build predictability into the design and a little bit of modularity even, uh, you yeah, can really this. get some momentum going. Yeah. You make the lives easier uh, for the guys who, and gals who are actually building it, and you're going to get a better product. Yep, better quality control. Yep. And that actually leads very nicely into number two. Yes. Which is design irregularities. Right. Um, which, uh, again, they, maybe they could be seen as the same thing, but they're a bit different. Are you talking about like the, out, the exterior form versus the sure. plans? Is that kind of what you're yep, getting at? Yeah, that would be one thing. You know, in a mid-rise, high-rise building, they're very good at lining up their apartments, right? In, in yep. nice, clean stacks. In low-rise, which is my uh, jam, um, that's not always the case. You have units overlapping each other. Uh, I have a project right now, I swear they were playing Jenga and designing at the same time, and there was some cross-pollination there. Um, and it makes it, again, it makes it hard to do your takeoffs for energy models. It makes it really hard to energy model. I've got so many funky little ceilings and floors and whatever. Um, it makes it hard for the contractor. Um, that stuff is going to eventually sag, and yeah, it's got more thermal bridging, more structure. They got to work harder to make the building do what it wants to do. Um, so yeah, don't uh, just you know, don't try, don't get cute. Build sensible or design sensible buildings. And there's a lot, yeah. I mean, there's a lot. Making a simple building look interesting seems like quite an art. And, yes. And there's some people that are very, very good at it. So. I've seen some very simple plans, simple forms, very functional and very, I don't have, I'm not licensed to as express an, an aesthetic opinion. Right. That's what Stephen Winter says. I'm licensed. <laughs> for, for aesthetics. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's good. I mean, we didn't, we're not talking about shoeboxes. We're not talking about. Yeah, and even if, yeah, I mean, I in my presentation, I've got a slide from Park Slope where I used to live, and the townhomes all look exactly the same. And you think those people paid $6 million for their brownstone because it looked the same as the neighbors, or they didn't care that it looked the same as the neighbors? Does it maybe even add to the urban, you know, the street fabric? Well, I don't know what the right design term is, but, you know, is there value in things kind of looking more the same instead of everything having to be just a little bit different? And putting all that energy into these little tweaks when you could be putting the energy into um, refining your details, building some standard um, practices in that everyone can build uh, efficiently and uh, well. All right. Nice. Yeah. All right. Now we're switching gears a little bit. More, more technical now. Thermal that was all very fluffy. Yes and no. I can't say that. You can, you can say that. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be pilloried. <laughs> No, no. All right, thermal bridging, mm -hmm. roofs and walls. This is a nitty-gritty performance issue. Yes, um, and we have our passive house friends to thank for really making this a, a more obvious to the rest of us. Um, so when we do all these energy models, actually, um, my friend Charlotte just, uh, she's working on a project in Toronto where um, one of the key things uh, that they're looking at is the difference between modeled performance and 
actual performance of these buildings. And where's, where there is a, there is a difference. Yeah. And where does that difference come from? And one of the things in the envelope uh, that contributes to this is thermal bridging. Um, so roofs, you know, in New York City. Should we define it are, quickly? We're oh, thermal bridging, bridging is, go ahead. Well, we're in a framed home, for example, if you okay. have a two by six wall and it's filled with R19 bats, mm. the studs themselves only are about R5 or something. Is R, so, wood is R1 per inch. Yeah. All right. So five and a half. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. <laughs> so that, that weak, that lesser R value kind of diminishes the performance of the whole wall. Right. And by adding rigid insulation on the outside, Bill and I talked about this and the yeah. envelopes podcast. Yeah, you, you you add more if you put R five rigid on the outside, you add more than R five to the whole ex- assembly. Exactly, because you reduce the bridging. Yep, and that's the that's the point. Um, and uh, so in roofs in New York City, at least with mostly low slope roofs, it's not a problem because the typical detail is, you know, a few layers of poly ISO on top and you're good to go. Um, I will say though that in the newest version um, of the building code, they added a table that was actually only in the residential code for years, where if you have a not, have an unvented uh, ceiling or attic assembly, a certain percentage of the R value, if you're using air permeable insulation, has to be above deck. So, like, if it's an R38 roof, you have to have R15 continuous above, and then you can do your bats down below. Like, and it doesn't apply if you do spray foam or whatever. But, um, you know, I still see drawings come across my desk that haven't picked that up. Um, And, you know, again, thermal bridging, it's not only a loss of uh, performance, but it's also potential for uh, moisture condensation. And you got durability issues and indoor air quality issues and et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So, yeah, roofs, roofs, you know, Low slope roofs aren't uh, bad, except for when you get to round roof drains. If if a good architect will say, oh, you know, R fifteen minimum at the roof drain instead of going from zero to whatever. Uh, okay. okay. The walls are really where it's at, and especially masonry and especially steel framed walls. That metal is so conductive. I mean, if you're not putting rigid insulation on the outside, and I know for code that's an option, or you can try to load uh, load your wall full of closed cell spray foam, but who wants to pay for all that? Just do some bats on the inside, and then a couple inches of rigid on the outside, and Bob's your uncle. And you see, you see, do you see steel framed walls with insulation in the in the in the cavities and nothing else? I see it come across my desk. I hope. you see. Drawings? I don't let it off of my desk. You until see, really, you still see drawings where you have steel framing. Yeah. Bats in the steel framing and nothing else. Yeah, I see. I see. I still see low slope wood frame roofs with you know R thirty eight bats between the joists, nothing on top. You know, and that's just you know. And a lot of this is uh, the title of the presentation is "We Should Know Better," and so I have to tell people at the beginning of my presentation: Look, probably, hopefully, you're gonna hear, you will have heard about all of these issues before, or at least hopefully been aware of them and maybe just need to be reminded or whatever, but it's not rocket science. These, these are things that we should have figured out a long time ago, and they just, for some reason, keep finding their way into these construction documents. All right. Yeah. All right. So the sub subcategory, or the next one for thermal bridging, is at slabs. And this is, uh, I would say, at least 50% of my projects, um, first time I see the drawings, and this is hard to do on the radio or podcast or whatever, but the insulation is drawn behind the foundation and under the slab, if you have a slab on grade foundation. And so you have a nice little L, kind of like an in- inverted L, but you have continuous concrete vertically and horizontally. 
So A, you don't need both the vertical and the horizontal, you only need one. B, you need to get the insulation either on the outside of the foundation and make sure the top of it is contiguous with the above grade wall insulation, or you can leave it on the inside of the foundation and at least put it, separate the slab from the foundation if you don't have a structural slab. And man, that's one that it, it, architects for some reason just have a really hard time wrapping their heads around. And, and it's tricky. First of all, I think passive house people wouldn't necessarily agree with you that you don't need sub-slab insulation. And are you, are you oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. I'm so talking, oh, let me, let's clarify. So my projects are mostly um, low-rise, multifamily, affordable. We're not pursuing any of the advanced certifications. All right. We're just pursuing house. the base, Energy Star, you know, lead for homes or green communities. And when you talk about slabs, are we talking about basement floors or are we talking about slab on slab grade? Slab on grade. Okay. Yep. There's, yeah, big difference. There's there. a difference. Okay. Well, yeah, and, and the, the diagram in my presentation shows, well, yeah, we've got insulation starting at six inches below grade going down to 24 inches below grade. What about zero to six inches below grade? That's the coldest part. The ground gets warmer the farther you go down, hence the you know frost depth for your footings. And so the coldest part of the foundation is the part that's not getting any insulation. Yeah. Yeah, We I, that was, that's been a... You know, 20 years ago, I was dealing with that. You know, you talk people into... We into, should know better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, I've seen it so many times where in a basement, insulating the, insulating the outside of a, of a foundation wall. And you get to above grade. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't I want, to, cover I don't want it the foam. Or something. I don't want and the foam above grade. I'll yeah. just cut it at grade. Yeah. And leave the top 18 Because they want to see that concrete. Yeah. Yeah. Or they don't want to cover it, and it is a tricky detail to cover it on the outside it, if you have a lot of exposed and this foundation. Is, and this is, yeah, there. This is one of the trickier details, I think, yeah. to get right. I and will do definitely have, concede that. And in the show notes, can we put links to some some resources you think that have good? Yeah. All right. Yep. There are good details. We can put a link to, to at least the one of your powerpoints. Sure. That absolutely. has some examples a of that. slides there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Number it, five. It is not rocket science, though. No, <laughs> but I, but I can. Yes, but we get it. We get but it. But it's it's it can be challenging and it can be different and anything different is, yeah, right. right. Agreed. All right. Number if four. it wasn't, if it was easy, we would have wrapped our heads around it a long time ago, and it wouldn't be on my top ten. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, number five. Number five. Poorly detailed air barrier. The trick to air barriers is that you have to draw them. So this is on plans. You're, or you're, 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 this is on? On plans. Okay. Or sections. Um, and especially details. details. Okay. Yeah. And so actually that's, that's really how it should work is you have that air continuity, air barrier continuity, big fat dashed line running across your building section, top, sides and bottom and then you zoom in and you're looking at every uh, jog in the building if you just couldn't help yourself <laughs> every 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 material uh, transition every assembly transition um, you know floors to ceilings to walls etc um, and you're zooming in all the way down to the level where the general contractor should not have any questions about how you expect their leakage requirements to be met now, he or she can say, oh, I would rather do it this way. That's fine. But if you don't have something to start from, what happens is I get out there in the field as the building's being framed, 
contractor looks at me and says, what do we got to do? And I say, well, what's in the drawings? <laughs> and they say, this is what's in the drawings, but we don't know what it means. And, or, you know, or it's just buried in the specs somewhere because it's buried in the code somewhere. And, and, you know, who looks at specs? <laughs> Let me take that back. And unfortunately, Several GCs work, look at specs, but are they sitting out there, you know, in the job trailer or are they in someone's tool um, belt as they're walking around the building? No. It's hard. It's hard. <clears throat> yeah. It's hard to find things from specs. Oh, yeah. my God. It, it really is. Yeah. So what are some of the examples you see? I mean, give, give me an example of an air barrier that's just... Well, that's, first of all, wait, we should, probably shouldn't mention any... Um, trade names, but let's say the sheet air and water barrier product that one would typically apply to wood framed construction. On the outside. On the outside yes. of a building. Bu and it has paper, a tendency building to paper, building house paper, rep. house wrap. Not brand, no brand names. No, no. brand names. Um, something like that can work well as a water barrier. Sure. If it's installed correctly, which between you, me, and whoever's listening, it never is. It can be, there's, a le there's less of a chance that it's going to be an air barrier, and I can safely say it is never installed in a way that it's going to um, achieve you know, a complete air barrier like air barrier. you and, and I would expect And they've to stopped claiming that. Have they? Those manufacturers have not been claiming that. Oh, good. They call it a, a water-resistant barrier or a drainage plane. Okay, they, so they do know better by now. That, but, do the, but do the people using it know better by well, now? Well, that, that's, that's the issue, yeah. yeah. No, I yeah. have I have house wrap. That's my air barrier. <clears throat> yeah, and it's even right. It's not. It's lapped. No. It's it's got staples. And Lord it knows, it's flapping in the wind for yep. however many months while they're waiting for the weather to warm up so they can mm -hmm. put up their cladding, whatever. Gotcha. Whereas, so and if if this was a framed framed construction, what what do you like to see for an air barrier? Well, we've started seeing a lot more of the again not naming any products, but the sheathing with the air and water barrier built into the outer layer. Um, that seems to have a lot better results because it is more manageable. And and tapes all the seams there very important tape, to tape yeah. those seams properly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, a liquid applied air and water barrier. We don't see all that often on low rise wood frame, but you know, right. obviously in steel and and masonry, it's it's the norm. Cock and foam from the inside. Cock and foam from the outs or from the inside. Yeah. Um, you know. We're starting to backpedal a little bit on spray foam. Spray foam is good to use um, in certain areas when it's really hard to do anything else. But uh, you know, if you're looking at the global warming potential and all that stuff, uh, we've really started to see you know either fiberglass bats or cellulose. As long as you've got a good layer of rigid insulation on the outside, which also has its own you know global warming potential. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it's all a bunch of trade-offs. Really, um, you can achieve the same tightness um, if you've got a good air barrier in that assembly and all the way around all right yeah thanks for listening that's the first five of the top 10 multifamily design mistakes we'll do the other five next week thanks thank you for listening to buildings and beyond for more information about the topics discussed today visit www.swinter.com slash podcast and check out the episode show notes Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We provide energy, green building, and accessibility consulting services to improve the built environment. Our professionals have led the way since 1972 
in the development of best practices to achieve high-performance buildings. Our production team for today's episode includes Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and myself, Heather Breslin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.